Um, but today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29. And uh, I don't have it on the screen for you today, so I'll just read it to you. We're going to be in Genesis 29. Um, I'm going to read the whole, well, I'm going to read till verse, yeah, I'll read the whole thing. And then we'll, we'll pick it apart. But um, this is a passage that's near and dear to my heart because it understands, it talks about how idolatry works. It talks about how my heart tends to go towards other things. Um, very sneakily tends to uh, make idols and make uh, things, um, even good things, into things that I worship. So we'll talk about how our hearts do that as um, I think it was Spurgeon that said, our hearts are idol factories. We can make, we can make worship, make statues out of anything these days. So um, let's pray and then I'll, I'll read it and we'll go through it. Lord, I pray that you would guide us through this scripture today. I pray that your spirit would talk to us. I pray that you, um, Lord, we, gosh, we have really um, a need for you on this Father's Day. I love the New Testament name for you as Daddy. And I, uh, the New Testament goes on to say that we can't... Um, that a spirit has been put into us. The spirit of God has been put into us that cries, Abba, Father, that relates to you as a dad. Um, Lord, I pray that that would be awakened within us today, that we could take that even to new, um, a new level today, that, that, would make that, a, that you would make that a part of our, normal part of our experience of you as Christians. We wouldn't just see you as creator, you are, or as, as king, you are, but as the king who is our dad and that loves us as children. Lord, do that deep work within us today. Lord, speak to us through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this is Genesis 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. And the stone over the mouth of the well was, was large. And when all the flocks were gathered, were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and they'd water their sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. This is verse four. So Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. And he said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yeah, we know him, they, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yeah, he's well, they said. And here, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we, then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came from her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. And he embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all the things, all these things. And Laban said to him, you are my flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, this is verse 15, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you, uh, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your daughter Rachel's hand, uh, your daughter Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, 
but they seem like only a few days because of his love for her. Oh, I know. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his, ser- his servant Zilpah to his daughter to be her attendant. And when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Rachel replied, it is not our custom here to give, to give the youngest daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this, this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work, you shyster. And Jacob did it. He finished the week with Leah at seven years, and, and, uh, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his serpent Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Mm. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Okay, so um, the human desire for true love, it, it's always been celebrated throughout ancient cultures, ancient literatures, through songs and stories and poems, and, um, but um, in these days, many, many people agree that our contemporary culture has magnified this to an astonishing, astonishing rate. It's a big deal. And this story in the Bible illustrates that really well. Here's some of the backstory that we need to know to, to see how this whole thing goes. God comes to Abraham and he promises to redeem the world through Abraham's family, through his descendants. That's Genesis chapter 12. So here's what that means. That means in every generation, one child would be chosen to bear that line. Okay? It was a future promise. In generations to come, one of your kids, this na- will, you will become a nation, and this nation, out of this nation, the whole world will be brought back to me. The whole world will be saved. Remember, that's the plot of the Bible. In, uh, in the Garden of Eden, we see mankind leaving the presence of God, being cast out of the presence of God further east. Cain kills Abel. He's cast further east. And so there's this eastward, eastward movement away from the presence of God. And the plot of the Bible is God bringing mankind back into his presence where there will be healing, health, re- restoration, worship, back to a Sabbath day, seventh day, restful environment, fulfilling environment in the presence of our king, in the presence of God. Abraham fits into that. He's the new Adam in Genesis chapter 12. And basically God is saying through you and through your offspring, it's it's the same as Adam and to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, right? Through your kids, you're going to raise a God-honoring generation that will lead the world west, if you would, back into my presence where the world will be saved. That's the plot. That's what's going on in the Old Testament and throughout the entire Bible. But really, specifically in the Old Testament. And what that means is, then therefore, and this set this custom in motion that in every generation, one child would be chosen to bear that specific line, to walk with God as head of the family and to pass that faith and that promise on to the next generation. Um, raising up that next generation was a big deal. Passing the taunt is a big deal. Um, you know, those things that we've lost in an individualistic culture. Back then, in this collectivist culture, raising your kids and passing that on for them to have that responsibility and a place to fit and a purpose was a big deal. Then there would be another child that would carry on and another child that would carry on and another child until one day one of Abraham's descendants would be the Messiah himself. That's the plan. So Abraham fathers Isaac. Years later, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, becomes pregnant with twins, and God spoke through this prophecy that said, in this case, the older one will serve the younger. There's a reversal going on in this case, a a, a common reversal for God. This happens quite a bit. 
In this case, the older will serve the younger. That meant that the second twin born would be chosen to carry on this messianic purpose, this messianic line. But in spite of this prophecy, Isaac set his heart on the older son, Esau. That's who he loved more, okay? He favored him over the younger one, Jacob. And ironically, this was the same tragic mistake that God saved Abraham from making when he called him to, when he called him to offer up his only son. Remember? What about Ishmael? I like him. And God says, no, nope. I've chosen who I've chosen. Um, because of Isaac's favoritism, the family system was poisoned. Esau grew up proud, spoiled, willful, impulsive, while Jacob grew up cynical, bitter, and turned inward. Fathers, this is important. Favoritism ruins families as we'll see a little bit more. It came time, as it came time for um, the old Isaac to give the blessing to the head of the clan, in defiance of God's prophecy, he intends to give it to Esau. I'm gonna give it to Esau, but you guys know the story. J Jacob, dressed up like his older brother, Esau's going blind. Jacob, um, with his mom's help, <laughs> takes a goat slaughters it, makes a meal for Esau on a Father's Day. Uh, just, it, that's not true, but you know, bear with me. They're doing something for their father, and they tape, because Esau's super hairy, Jacob's super smooth, they tape hair on Esau's skin. I, I imagine that Jacob, or excuse me, on Jacob's skin I, uh, skin, I imagine that Jacob tries to like talk, maybe talk like Esau a little bit. And Esau, uh, Isaac is fooled. He feels the, the hair on his son, and he thinks, okay, this is, my, this is Esau. And, when he, um, and his nearly blind father, he gave the blessing to Jacob instead of to Esau. And when Esau found out about that, and we, um, he was mad. He was very upset. He wanted that blessing from his dad, and his dad couldn't take it back. He really he recognized that there was something prophetic in this horrible deceit, that God was using the deceitfulness of Jacob to fulfill something. Perhaps Jacob, or excuse me, perhaps Isaac remembered back to the prophecy at their birth and thought, okay, this is the way God is doing this. I, I don't know. But he said to Esau, even though he sought it with tears, he said, bless me also, Father. And he says to Esau, he says, I'm sorry, I've given the blessing to Jacob, and with Jacob it's going to stand. He vowed to kill Jacob. Esau, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Jacob hears about it, and Jacob flees for his life. He runs away. Jacob's life was in ruins. He'd lost his family He'd lost his inheritance that he stole because now he's on the run. And in fact, he would never see his mother and father alive again. This is it. What a way to go. We were just talking in the back about how refreshingly honest the Bible is when it comes to families and people's lives. Think it doesn't even seek to hide the dysfunction. Jacob headed to the other side of, of the Fertile Crescent where, where many of, the, of his relatives and his mother and grandfather still lived. There he hoped to at least survive. That's where we pick up our story. He escapes to his mother's family. They take him in. Um, his uncle Laban hires him as a shepherd of, of some of his flocks. And once Laban realized that Jacob had, had the ability as a manager... He offers him like a management position. Jacob's very cunning. What can I pay you to be in charge of my flocks? He asks. And Rachel, uh, Jacob's answer was one word. Rachel. Really interesting. Let me read it to you again. This is 16 through 20. Listen to, listen to Jacob. You can hear it in his voice. The passion in his voice. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. 
and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Okay, the Hebrew text literally says that if you read into read the Hebrew, it literally says that Rachel had a great figure. That's what it says. She was beautiful. And on top of that, it says she was beautiful. Those are two separate statements in the Hebrew. She had a beautiful, she had a great figure, and she was she was beautiful. Jacob, in other words, was more than smitten with her. Um, there's this great Hebraic scholar named Robert Alter who um, studies out of Berkeley, and he points out different nuances in the Hebrew text that signal um, how overwhelmed Jacob was with Rachel. He, he, he shows what, that the Hebrew, the Hebrew really enhances this. Jacob, first of all, he points out, uh, Alter points out that Jacob offered seven years' wages for her, which in, that, in the currency of that time was an enormous bride price, bride price to pay. That was way over and above, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then, in verse 21, Jacob said to, to, to Laban, give me my wife, my time is complete, I want to make love to her. Alter says that the Hebrew phrase is unusually, this is his quote, unusually bald, graphic, and sexual for, for ordinarily reticent ancient discourse, he says. Imagine, I mean, imagine saying to your father, your future father-in-law today, I can't wait to have sex with your daughter. That's, that's how forward this is in the Hebrew language. It's just blunt. It's right there. And the narrator is, is, is showing us a man overwhelmed with emotion and sexual longing for a woman. That's what this is trying to describe that Jacob is going on here. Jacob's life had a vacuum in it, had a huge wound. He was empty. He never had his father's love. He had lost his beloved mother's love because he had to run, and he certainly had no sense of God's love or care. There's this striving and this, this wrestling going on between him and God. Then, in, in the midst of that kind of wound, in the midst of that kind of life, where your father likes, likes your brother more than you, all of these things, he beholds the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, and he, he must have said something to himself like, if I had her, finally, something would be right in my miserable life. This would make it okay. If I had her, it would fix things. It would make me feel better. And the longing of his heart for meaning and affirmation were fixed on to Rachel. Now, most scholars will tell you that, that Jacob was unusual for his time. He was a man ahead of his time in this regard. Um, cultural historians tell us that in ancient times, people didn't generally marry for love, but for status. That was the main motive. Nevertheless, Jacob would not be that rare today in our, in, in our culture. Um, uh, Ernest Becker, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, uh, The Denial of Death. Anybody ever heard of that or read it? It's a incredible book he explains the various ways that secular people have dealt with loss with loss in their belief with God he's he's talking about this from a uh, I don't think he's a Christian but just talking about how our culture has strayed and cut ties with our belief in God our love for God and all of those things and we think um, he says that we're here by accident and not made for any purpose so how do we instill a sense of gratification in our lives without that kind of purpose? Um, some uh, sociologists call, the, call our culture a third world culture. He's not, and we're not talking in economic terms. Um, there's a, a sociologist named, named um, Reef is his last name. Do you remember that, Paul? What is that? His first name is maybe Paul. Paul Reef. I don't remember. His last name's Reef. He divides... Um, he divides civilizations through history into three categories, um, socio, not economic, but soci sociological categories called first, second, and third world cultures. But he's not talking economics. He's talking about a belief in God. First worlds are a belief in a sacred order um, in many gods. 
um, in oracles, those types of things. You can see this in like the Battle of Troy, you know, in, in the Greek epics. You know, they, they make a law, they go to war. How do they know the law is valid? Well, because the oracle said, right? And that, that whether you agree with it or not doesn't really matter. The oracle said it. And so we're, we're sticking to it. And whether, that's, whether those myths are true or false, it doesn't matter. It provides a sense of stability for the culture, right? If the gods said it, or if a priest comes down from on high and said, I've heard from the gods and this is it, well, we have a direction, we have a, a stability. Second world cultures are Christian cultures that believe in Yahweh or the God of the Bible um, or Judeo-Christian cultures. Um, and the, the effect is the same way. We, we adhere our morals and our ethics um, or second world cultures adhere morals and their ethics to a holy written word. We all submit to the, the Bible, the, the scriptures. Again, it's nice if we can understand it, but at the end of the day, if we don't understand it or not, it doesn't matter. We're submitting to an authority above ourselves, and that gives us a sense of stability in this, in this world. But Reef goes on to explain that third world countries have cut ties from anything metaphysical or anything teleological, meaning there is no purpose, there is no, there is no transcendent, there is no universal the only thing that we have to keep ourselves on track is an inward look at ourselves. And Reef goes on to say, historically, there has never been in recorded history a third world culture that has survived. It has always eaten itself alive from the inside. Why? He says because um, it has no anchor to root its morals or its ethics in. We can't say, thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not do this. Why not? I've got, you know, I've got this disposition in me. I want, I want what's yours. I want to have it. And without appealing to something grander and something bigger than ourselves, we have no place to argue that. We have no place to argue our rules, our ethics, or our morals. And we start to fall, we start to fall apart and eat ourselves alive from the inside. Well, back to Ernest Becker, he says, um, how, so how do we, he answers the question, how do we find purpose? We live in a third, world, a third world country, and we think we're here by accident. We make up our own purpose. How do we, how do we instill a sense of significance in our lives? And one of, the, one of the main ways is what Becker calls, in our culture, apocalyptic romance, he says. We look to sex and romance to give us the transcendent sense of meaning, purpose, and hope that we used to get, that our culture used to get from faith in God. Uh, the Bible would put it this way, you, were, you are worshiping something. The Bible does not divide the world up into a category of people who worship and a category of people who don't. The Bible will say, you are worshiping. And it's hard for us in a third world country to understand because we don't think there is a God. We've detached ourselves from anything metaphysical and yet we still worship. We have to. The Bible would say to be human is to worship. So what do we end up doing? We make idols. We trade the faith in God for other things and people and endeavors and those types of things. We instill our own sense of meaning and purpose. Otherwise, we'd be a culture of nihilists. But instead, we've, we've taken on an existentialist point of view where we make our own meaning because uh, existentialist philosophy have said, obviously, we need meaning to survive. Humans are purpose-made creatures. We're, we're, we're made with it. We need purpose to keep getting out of bed in the morning. So our culture says, make, it, make your own. Make your own. And Becker says one of those idols in our world that we have made our purpose is what he calls apocalyptic romance. Here's what he says about it. Here's a quote from Becker from his book. It's, I think it's phenomenal. He says this, um, talking about the modern secular person, he says, he still needs to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and gratitude. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? That's the question. If there's no God, how do we do that? 
One of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he found, he found looked, uh, looked for in, a, in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. In one word, the love object is God. Man reached for a thou when the worldview of the great religious communities um, were overseen by God died. They reached for a vow. After all, what is it that we want when when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? This is the part that just took my head off. After all, what is it that we want? What are we really after? What's behind it? What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? Here's what he says. We want redemption, nothing less. I want validation. I want someone to look at me and say, you matter. I see you and I love you. You're here. What was Jacob looking for? In other words, the Bible would call this a blessing. A blessing. And dads, this is why, this is so important. God would bless children in the ancient world through a father. That's how it would work. Dads, I, I, just, I don't want you to lose the significance of your role in society's life, not even just your own children's life, but the power that you have to bless and to curse, to say to someone younger than you, whether they're you know, physically younger or not, younger in the faith, younger in your trade, younger in some way, to say to somebody, I see something in you. I can help you get there. The Bible calls that a blessing. Typically in the ancient world, the blessing can turn, uh, it had three elements to it. There was a touch. The father would touch the, the son or the daughter lovingly. There was a present affirmation. Hey, you're really smart for your age. Hey, your mind works a certain way. Hey, what you did right there was beautiful. Thirdly, there's a future trajectory. Have you thought about, you might be doing this. I see you, I love you. Here's what you're good at, and here's where you're going. That was a a patriarchal blessing in the ancient world, in some form in that way. And in an individualistic culture, we've lost that. Because we, we now see our world, we, we see each other so, indiv- so separate from each other. Uh, so many times, I, I, I remember when I was a youth worker, I tried to get, I was on the hunt for older folks to get into the youth group because I was very aware, I was studying the Bible, and I was very taken by this whole, pro- this whole principle that, that God um, gave the older generation a huge part to play in the church. Namely, blessing the younger. Again, whether it was geographically younger or actually, you know, spiritually younger or whatever it was, men long. And I, and I had constant, I had people coming to me that were my age at the time, in our, in our young, uh, our, our early to mid-30s would come to me and they would say, I still need someone to do that for me. I'm longing for someone. I never, my dad never did that. I know my dad loved me, but he never said it. Or I would hear all, all of these types of things. And I'm trying to get these 30-somethings to love on the, the younger ones. And these 30-somethings would say, okay, I'll do it, but what about me? I need someone, uh, John Eldridge in one of his books, he talks about the stages of becoming, uh, uh, the stages of manhood. And one of the stages that he talks about in his book is the king that at some point gets off his throne and becomes a sage and helps a younger man up to the throne, up to more responsibility to, to gain. We need, collectively, they ha- in a collectivist culture, they had that and they still have it in other parts of the world. This is very, you know, there's a, there's a coming of age, there's a rites of ceremony, there's all of these things where the older generation serves a major, major part in raising up the younger, blessing them in love. It's an environment where you can't, you can't, Um, there's only so much you can fail me but you'll never be out of my love you're my family 
You'll always be accepted, not always approved of, but you'll always be accepted. I'm invested in you. I see something in you. I'm called to you, and I'm going to help you get somewhere. Those three elements. And we're made for this as human beings. We long for this. This is a part of what it means. Every one of you, in fact, I would even be willing to be as so bold as to say every one of our problems stems from this. And we see this on display in Jacob. Jacob connived for his father's blessing. He would lie, steal, break his family apart to get, he, you know, he'd tape hair on himself and disguise his voice. I mean, like the, you know, the lengths he went to to get his dad's blessing. But it still haunted him because it was fake. And it destroyed his brother Esau because he needed it too. He carries this with him. He's cut off from his family. There's this departure. And he's looking for something to grab onto. And there's Rachel, this beautiful woman. That is exactly what Jacob did. And as Becker points out, that is what millions of other people are doing in our culture right now. Uh, The popular music and art of our society calls us to keep doing it. To load all of the deepest needs of our heart for significance and transcendence to romance. Oh, you know, uh, is it Dean Martin? You're, 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 nobody, you're nobody till somebody loves you. Isn't that how it goes? You're nobody till somebody loves you. You may be king. You may possess the world. I didn't put the, the, I'm glad I guessed Dean Martin because that's not in my notes. I just put the words. Mistake. Um, you may be king. You may possess the world and its gold. But gold won't bring you happiness when you're growing old. The world is still the same. You never change it. And sure as the stars shine above, you're nobody till nobody loves you. So find yourself someone to love. Our entire culture has taken that song literally. You're nobody. We maintain the fantasy that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us will be, will be made right, will, will be healed right? But when our expectations and our hopes reach that kind of magnitude, as Becker says, the love object is really God. He's the the embrace we're looking for in every set of arms. No lover, no human being is qualified for that role. No one can live up to that. So the inevitable result is disillusionment. And we see that in our culture. Divorce rates off the charts, why? Because we're, we're, we're raised to think, if I find that someone, then I'll be happy. And then it doesn't happen. Some people think that Becker's cultural analysis is dated, even though he did win a Pulitzer Prize for this. We now, we, now live in the, um, we now live in the hookup culture in which young people have turned sex into something ordinary, casual, free of commitment, um, Fewer men and women actually date or have boyfriends and girlfriends. I was just watching this, uh, I was just reading this article on The Atlantic that said that uh, uh, teen pregnancies are down historically. Um, There's less and less of those things going on, but then the article goes on to say it's not because our morals are getting better, it's because everyone's doing that on their phones these days. You don't have to leave your room to be promiscuous anymore. There is this growing peer pressure to engage in sex and not to get emotionally involved. Surely then our culture is moving away from any hope in this apocalyptic romance, as Becker says. But um, this other woman, Laura Sessions uh, Stepp, she wrote this book called Unhooked. It's phenomenal. She found that hookups hookups left most young women unsatisfied, that they were, quote, unwilling to admit this to their peers, but that they had enormous unsatisfaction in the lifestyle that they were living. The enormous stress our culture puts on physical and sexual beauty betrays, I mean, obviously shows that sex is a big deal. Um, C.S. Lewis heard from many of his peers in Britain um, that sex was nothing more than just an appetite like food. That was what was being argued. Um, and they basically said, once we recognize this, they said, and began, to, and began to basically have sex whenever we want it, people will cease to be driven mad by their desires. And here's what Lewis said. He said, suppose 
He said, suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate on a stage and then slowly lifting the cover for everyone to see. And just before the lights went out, that, you know, that it contained, what did he say, a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. And right before the lights went out, you'd shut the lid again. He said, if you went to a country that could sell out a theater like that, he said, one, uh, one, cr- one critic said that if you found a country in which, in which such a striptease act of food were popular, he would conclude that the people in that country were starving, that they had a problem with food. But Lewis goes on to observe that we're not, we're not starving for sex. There's more, there's more sex available than ever, and th- this is my point. There's always more to it than that. There's always more to it than that. Sex and romantic love, therefore, can't be just about an appetite like food. They are far more meaningful to us than that. An evolutionary biologist would argue that the urge to merge is hardwired into our brains. Freud went on to say that we're sexual from birth. That he, Freud went on to famously say that sex is a part of the essence of what it means to be human. You know, normally, you know, before him, you know, um, when sexual appetite ha- started to happen, he started to um, be attracted to members of the opposite sex. It was somewhere in your teens. You call it, we called it adolescence, right? And it was something that happened to us as part of a, a, a growth and development, but it wasn't part of our essence of who we are. Freud changed all that. He said, no, 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 infants are sexual, and that goes into why we, why we educate our children the way we do in our culture today. Freud had enormous impact on that. Christianity explains that our capacity for romantic love stems from our being made in the image of God. Did you know that? Christianity says that our capacity for romantic love comes from our being made in the image of God. You can read that in Genesis 1, 27 through 29, or Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 31. In either case, romantic love is an object of enormous power for the human heart and imagination and therefore can excessively dominate our lives. The person who is scared of it will avoid it on, one, on the one hand and pass by many wonderful partners for them. I've seen this in my pastoral career. There's people that are just scared to death of romantic love and therefore they never, they never get involved even though there's some great partners out there. On the other hand, the person who must have it, they'll choose some horrible people out of desperation. If you are too afraid or too enamored by it, it is assumed godlike power. And that's what's going on with Jacob. Jacob's inner emptiness had made him vulnerable to this idolatry of romantic love. And when he offered to work seven years for Rachel, nearly four times more than the ordinary price for a bride in his culture, four times more, Laban saw how lovesick, and he decided to take advantage of this weakness in Jacob. Laban was also a conniver, and Jacob had kind of met his match. When Jacob asked if he could marry Rachel, Laban's response was really vague. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, yes, good deal. He never actually says, yes, it's a deal. Instead, what did he say? He said, oh, it's better that I give her to you than someone else. Real? Right? Jacob there should have felt like, I feel like that's an insult. But he, he was so lovestruck, he couldn't get away from, he couldn't he couldn't even hear straight. Jacob, in other words, Jacob wanted to hear a yes, so that's what he heard. He heard what he wanted to hear. Instead, he said, I think it's good for you. CVS keeps telling me my, my prescription's ready. It's Sunday, CVS. In the middle of the celebration... Um, So seven years pass, Jacob comes to Laban and says, now give me my wife, as was the custom. There's this great wedding feast. In the middle of the celebration, Laban brought Jacob's wife to him. In that culture, she would have been heavily veiled, right? Heavily veiled. Uh, Jacob, already a little festive and maybe a little drunk, he lays down with her, he has sex with her, and it was probably passionate. I mean, he's been waiting for this for years. He's thinking this is Rachel. He's been waiting for this moment for years. And look, verse 25, it's just 
it, I mean, you should just feel the gong or the, in the movie, the minor key come in. Verse 25 says, when morning came, there was Leah. Oh. In the full light of day, Jacob looked and saw the woman he had just been with and who was his lawful wife, and it was Leah, the unattractive older sister of Rachel. Trembling with anger, I'm sure, Jacob went to Laban and said, what have you done to me? And Laban replies probably calmly, that she, he should have, hey, you should have known the customs of our land. What do you mean? I don't see anything wrong with this. I mean, obviously, we don't, we don't marry the younger sister before the older. That's unheard of. What were you expecting? Gotcha. If Jacob had committed to work for an additional seven years, you know, hey, throw in another seven years. I'll, I'll, I mean, if you really are dead set on Rachel, I'll, I'll give her, but, you, you know, it's only fair if you work another seven years for her. Oh, man. Stung and trapped, Jacob submitted to seven more years in order to marry Rachel as well as Leah. Now, you might be thinking, Jacob, you're an idiot. And yes and no, he's not just, he, he, well, I would say he's not an idiot, he's an, he's an addict. <laughs> he, Rachel was not just his wife, she was his savior. He had put his whole sense of happiness, well-being, fulfillment Sabbath day rest into this idea of Rachel than he had with God. He wanted and needed Rachel so profoundly that he heard and saw only the things he wanted to hear and see. So later, Jacob's idolatry of Rachel creates decades of, ministry, of, of misery in his own family. This is the story of the Bible. It's dysfunction to the max. Jacob's idolatry of Rachel brings decades of misery on his own family. Here's how it worked out. He ended up, because he loves Rachel, he adores Rachel's sons over Leah's, spoiling them and embittering the hearts of all the children, poisoning the family system. Remember the story of Joseph? He loves Joseph because he's Rachel's kid. But the greatest tragedy in all of this, clearly, don't you guys think, is Leah. Don't you think? Leah is the older daughter, and the narrator gives us one important detail about her. The text says that she had weak or poor eyes, and some have assumed that it meant that she couldn't see very well, but this passage does not say Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel could see good. That's not what the passage says. It says that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful. That's the juxtaposition, juxtaposition there. Justification. <laughs> it's contagious. <laughs> what you were able to say a second ago, you now will not be able to say. <laughs> I hate when that. Someone once said anonymity, but they stumbled over it, and I could say it before that before that second, and I tried to help them, and I was like, no, it's anonymity. What's happening to me? That's what's going on here. The word weakness probably means that she was literally cross-eyed. That's what most Hebraic scholars think, or literally unsightly in some way. That it hurt one's eyes to look at her. She was very, very unattractive. That's the point. Leah was particularly unattractive, and she had to live her whole life in the shadow of her younger sister, who was an absolute stunner incredibly beautiful and stunning and as a result think of poor Leah as a result her father Laban knew that no man was ever going to marry her and offer any kind of money so for years he wondered how he's going to get rid of Leah Rachel's easy I know I'm going to be able to, get to marry her off and get a good price but what am I going to do with with Leah and Jacob Laban found the solution to his financial problems and he capitalized on it. But think of what this meant for Leah. You, 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 you gals out there, think of this. Leah is the daughter whom her father didn't want. She became the wife of whom her husband didn't want. Ah. It's just heartbreaking. It really hurts. 
Leah had a hole in her heart every bit as deep as Jacob's, don't you think? And now she began to respond as the story goes on. She began to respond in the same way that Jacob did. She did to Jacob what Jacob had done to Rachel and what Isaac had done to Esau. She set her heart and her hope on Jacob's love for her. If I can just get my husband to love me, then I'll find rest. The last words of the chapter, I think, are probably some of the saddest words, I think, in the Bible. Let me read them to you. It's so sad. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, gosh, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Look how this goes. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. Why? Because she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. I've had a, I've had a child of his and, and she has had no, Rachel has had, the pretty one has had no kids. This will be my connection to my husband. Finally, he will love me. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, this time she says, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Finally, my husband will love me and be attached to me. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So the name of him was Judah. And then she stopped having children. What was she doing? She was trying to get happiness and an identity through through traditional family values. Well, and even, even more so. Back then, children... Were, children were huge. Children were your financial. They had no, they, so children back then, they, you had no, there was no retirement. So the way you retired, you secured your security when you were too old to take care of yourself was to have a lot of kids. It was their duty to take care of you. It was also your security. You know, back then in that world, um, you didn't have a big family. Bigger families would gobble up littler ones. Bigger Tribes would gobble up littler tribes. Bigger nations would gobble up littler nations. So when you, when you had more kids, your social status went up because you were providing, it was a matter, having children was a matter of, was a matter of national security. The more kids you had, the more you could train them to be warriors, the more you could protect yourself. Leah's thinking, look, I'm, I'm giving Jacob security I'm giving him financial uh, rest and security because kids can go out and work. Back then, if someone hired you to do a job back then, you were hired based on how many kids you had. You know, if you have like eight sons, you're going to do a faster and more efficient job than the guy that only has three. So they're going to hire you more. So you, people that had more kids were wealthier, All of those things. She's thinking, now, look what I'm doing for my husband. I am a team player. But it wasn't working. She set her hopes and dreams on her husband. If I have babies and sons, then my husband will come to love me. Then my unhappy life will be fixed. But instead, every birth pushed her down deeper into the hell of loneliness. Every day, she was condemned to see the man she longed for the most, to long to be in his arms, he was holding somebody else, her younger sister, in his arms. She lived in the shadow, she's already lived in the shadow of the beautiful younger sister, and now she's gonna, she has a whole life. She will always be tied to her sister. What a horrible, horrible way to live. Okay, what do we learn? What can we learn from this story? Well, We learn that through all of life, bear with me here, this is going to sound depressing, but it's actually actually good. (laughs) It's good. We learn that through all of life, there runs a ground note of cosmic disappointment. 
I'm going to let that hit you. I'm going to let you chew on it. Think about that. You are never going to lead a wise life until you understand that in every aspect of life, all of life, every place you go, every person you meet is both beautiful and broken. Every opportunity you have, every career opportunity, every uh, place you move to. Why is this helpful? Because, well, if I could just get out of Seattle and move to wherever. What are you saying? There's a promised land, and this is not it, but over there will be better. Well, not so fast. Hold on a second. You wake up in the morning, and there's Leah. As much as I respect Leah, and we have a lot to learn about Leah, that is the, that is the line in this, in this story. That is the moral lesson here for Jacob. He he. He went to bed thinking it was Rachel. My hopes, my dreams, everything's about to be fulfilled. I finally made the pinnacle of what I need to be blessed. Finally, I'm a real human being. I'm validated because I have the most beautiful woman in the world. And he wakes up and there's Leah. That is running through all of life. You get that job. You get the career promotion. And you, Leah's there. You move from Seattle to the new place that's going to be better and aligns more with your views and all. And Leah's there. And what that does is it gives you some thicker skin. (laughs) It doesn't make you a pessimist, especially if you realize that life is both beautiful and broken. There are blessings and curses in the land, right? (laughs) But one of the reasons that we are so weak in our culture and we don't like pain is because we don't think we should have it. We don't think we should have any pain. So when we experience pain, it's like the double whammy. Not only does it hurt, but we're also psychologically hurt because we don't think we should be experiencing it anyway. But if you go into life knowing that in this next new season, the gospel gives incredible balance. Because on the one hand, let's say you... you Let's say you lose something. Let's say you're devastated by something. You can say as a Christian, that's not living for this world. As a Christian, you can only get so devastated. Let's say you get fired or the stock market crashes, which by the way, the S&P is not looking too hot. It's volatile. It goes up. And Let's say you lose your investment. You lose your money. You can say, darn it. But you can say to your heart, you know what, heart? I can only be so devastated because money wasn't my main thing anyway. In other words, you get grit, you can survive. Turn the coin over. Let's say you get promoted. More money. Woo! You can say to yourself, wow, this is great, this is exciting, but you know what, heart? You can only get so excited because that's not your main thing anyway. The gospel makes you incredibly even-keeled. It gives you stability on either side. Whether you're devastated or blessed, you can say, whoa, okay, it's both broken and beautiful. It means that no matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, it's always Leah, never Rachel. And this applies to all of life. Uh, Nobody said this better than C.S. Lewis. He said, most people, if they have really learned to look look down into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages. Or, uh, I might have read that wrong. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or, or, learn, or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was, something we, there, there was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality like, like sand through your fingers. 
I think everybody knows what I mean, Lewis says. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have, may have been excellent, and, and the chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. He goes on to say, um, if, you find, if you're finding that you're longing for something that this world can't provide, Lewis says, what else could it mean that you were, except that you were made for another world? If you get married and you put your, all of your weight and all of your deepest hopes and longings on the person that you are marrying, you are going to crush him or her with your expectations. You're going to inject poison into the family system. Pre-marriage counseling, right there in a, in, a, in a nutshell. You're going to become enmeshed. You're going to take responsibility for each other's happiness, each other's emotions. I can't be happy until she is, so I'm going to go out of my way. I, I will do anything to fix her, and you can't. I won't be happy until he makes me. It's your responsibility to make me happy. What are you going to do? And on and on and on and on and on it goes. It will distort your life and your spouse's life in a hundred ways. No person, not even the best one, can give you all that your soul is, is wanting and needing. You're going to think you've gone to bed with Rachel and you're going to get up and it's always, it's always Leah. Okay, when you realize this, you can do one of four things. When you realize this principle... There's always going to be a level of disappointment. The world is both beautiful and broken. There's a, there's a few things you can do. You can blame the things or the people that are disappointing you. That's one thing. It's your fault. I would be better if it wasn't for you. If you would get your stuff together, then I it would make me happier. If you hadn't have done all these things, then I would be okay. I'm here because of you. And I'm, before you, I I'm here because of my parents. And it can go on and on and on and on. That's the way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. You can blame yourself, that number two, you can blame yourself and beat yourself up. I'm a failure. It's because of me. I see that everyone is happy. I don't know why I'm not happy. There's something wrong with me. This is the way of shame. Oh, the blessings are made for everybody but me, right? You can blame the world, number three. You can say curses on the entire opposite sex, <laughs> right? in which you'll make yourself cynical and empty. Like Lewis said, you can shut your heart up in a box so it never gets hurt again, but in that box it will become hard, calloused, and unusable. Or, number four, you can reorient your entire life focus towards God. Scholars call this the great transference, where I say, okay, what I'm really looking for in you, in that, in this, and in, in, in you what I'm really looking for is in you is just a taste of what I'm really looking for in God and eternity. That's what Leah, by the way, the one person where there's some kind of progress in the story is Leah. This is what she does at the end of the story. Did you notice the last boy that was born to her was, was named Judah? Which means praise, right? She says this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. There's no mention of her husband. This time I will praise the Lord. She finally transferred her identity, finally transferred it from her husband to God. I can't resist. Here's C.S. Lewis again. Um, the failure of romantic love as a, as a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern man's frustration. No human relationship can bear the burdens of godhood. However much we, we may idealize uh, and idolize him, the, the love partner, he inevitably, he inevitably reflects uh, earthly decay and imperfection. So what's the answer to this? Well, I mentioned earlier uh, something shifted in Leah's heart when she had her son Judah. She turned her attention from her husband to God. How? What happened? What was that all about? Well, maybe she sensed that something was special about Judah. And there certainly was. Um, in Genesis 49, we are told that it is through him that the true king, the Messiah, will someday come. God had come. Here's the, here's the beautiful. If I could make this into a sentence, here it is. God had come to the girl that nobody wanted, the unloved, and made her the ancestral mother of Jesus the Messiah. 
That's what the story is about. Think about that. That that says so much about the character of God. God had come to the girl that nobody wanted, the unloved, the ugly one, and made her, not beautiful stunner Rachel, made her the ancestral mother of Jesus. That tells us so much. Salvation came into the world not through beautiful Rachel, but through the unwanted one, the unloved one. This should make you fall in love with God all over again. Why? Is it because God roots for underdogs? I mean, he does, but it's much more than that. The bigger point is that when God saw that Leah was unloved, here's the bigger point. When God saw that Leah was unloved, he looks down and he sees Leah unloved. He loved her. That's, that's the story. He loved her. It just gets me every time. God is saying, Leah, I'm the one you're really looking for. And I'm the only one that can give you what you need. And he's saying the same to you and me today. I see you and I love you, even in your deficiencies, even in your unattractiveness. I love you and I see you. He is, God is the husband to the husbandless. That's why he gets these titles. He's the father to the fatherless, the husband to the husbandless. See, the gods, the gods of moralistic religions, they favor successful overachievers. That's what the gods of moralistic religions, they want. They want the ones that will climb the moral ladder and claw their way to the top and climb the mountain to pick the purple flower. You know, that's... That's what they want. But the God of the Bible is the one who comes down into this world to accomplish a salvation and to give us grace for those that could never attain it themselves. He loves the unwanted, the weak, the unloved. That is the gospel. That is what makes Christianity so very different. So very different. He's not just a king and we are his subjects. He's not just a shepherd and we are his sheep. He is a husband And we are his spouse. He is in love with us, even when no one else notices us. Even when he sees all the ugly. And yet he loves you. He loves me. And there is only one set of arms that will give you and me what our hearts really desire. That's why we sing that song, my heart will sing, no other name but Jesus. What are we doing? We're reminding ourselves, okay, there's all these other voices saying, come after me. I can make you fulfilled. All of Western advertisement is built on this. You got the latest gadget? Well, now the new ones come out and you're not as valuable. How can you can't feel fulfilled unless you have the, the new thing? And then updated this and the updated that. Those who work retail, you know that that's how it works. But how can you and I know that he, that he loves us? By looking at the one to whom Leah's life points. When God came to the earth in Jesus Christ, he was truly the son of Leah. Think of Jesus. He's the son of Leah. He became the man that nobody wanted. Remember that? He was born in a manger. He had no beauty that we should desire him. That's Isaiah 53 two. He came to his own and his own received him not. That's John Uh, chapter 1 verse 11 and at the end everyone abandoned him Jesus cried out even to his own father on the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me why did he become Leah's son why did he become the man that nobody wanted for you that's it for you He took upon himself our sins, our exile, our unwantedness, our curse. Isn't that really the curse when we're unwanted? Isn't that one of the Bible's most scary descriptions of hell? It's not fire and flames in my mind. 
It's when Jesus looks at, at judgment day and looks at someone and looks right through them and says, I don't know who you are. I don't see you. In other words, the most significant person in the universe is saying you are insignificant to the point where I don't see you. The most significant person in the universe says you're insignificant. I don't see you. That's hell. Therefore, what is heaven when the most significant person in the universe looks at you and says, I see you. I love you. I want you. You matter. I put my weight upon you. You're beautiful. I've come for you. And I became insignificant on the cross. I became the place where the most significant being on the cross, I became insignificant to the point where even the father said, I'll turn my back on my son so I can turn my face to you. And if we are deeply moved by his love for us, it detaches our hearts from all the other would-be saviors. That's how it works. That's how you're free. That's how it sets you free. Only love can set you free. We will stop trying to make others into saviors because we have a savior who's captured our hearts. Amen.